going to take just a second and get set up up here. I encourage you to grab something to write with, because this is about to be a really good sermon. So, <laughs> so I've been struggling with pride recently. <laughs> My confession time. One of the things uh, that I've actually been praying through is, uh, is pride, um, ironically enough. But it's come to my attention through working out. I realized how out of shape I am. We started a new thing called a 21-day fix. It's beach body, which I know beach season's over, but I still want the beach body, right? So we started that about 12, 13, 14 days ago. And the first workout I did killed me. You know, they, they say, you can do anything for 60 seconds. That's what the lady says over and over. I'm like, no, can't do that for 60 seconds. And uh, you have to modify. So if you can't do the full workout, you look over to a lady named Kat. And she's doing a modified version. Well, I'm with Kat a lot. So about halfway through that minute, I can't do the, you know, even jumping jacks. We do this right here. Kat's over here doing this. That's me after 30 seconds. That's all I got. I'm, I'm right here. I'm living right here. And it's just, it's, it's pathetic. But I get better and better and better every day. And I feel better. It's, it's going well. I'm enjoying it. But it really does knock away my pride. One of the things I, I heard the, the instructor say was, she said, if you're tired of giving up or if you're tired of starting over, stop quitting. I was like, that's pretty good. And then she said, be stronger than your excuses. And I was like, that's good too. So being a pastor, I thought, hey, I can get Jesus in there. Jesus is greater than your excuses. And it just stuck with me for a long time. And as I came to this passage uh, for this sermon series, I saw that there were excuses and excuses that we had that, that we're dealing with here in the Scripture, but also excuses that you and I deal with in the here and now, not just back then. And I thought, wow, Jesus is greater than our excuses. So tonight I want us to dive into the text. Join me, if you will, in the book of Mark. It's the uh, second gospel in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and it's chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at the first six verses, and I'll jump around a little bit too, so you can follow along your device or in your Bible or on the screen here. But I want to share with this uh, the scripture first of this wonderful story that uh, Jesus is going back to his hometown. He's been out ministering, doing wonderful things. People have heard about him. He's the local boy made good. And now he comes back to his hometown, and this is the reception. Chapter 6, verse 1 and following. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as... These performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah, Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
and he wondered. He was bewildered. He was amazed at their unbelief. From this text, I, I see three reasons why we make excuses. There's tons of excuses. We won't even go trying to cover all the excuses we make that distract us from having faith in God, that keep us in a state of unbelief. But maybe understanding what the reasons are will help us fight wanting to make up excuses. The first reason we see here that we make excuses is that the gospel is scandalous. Number one, you can write that down. It'll pop up on the screen just like that. The gospel is scandalous. So this message that Jesus is teaching doesn't make sense to their hearts. He's going around. He's teaching a message. It makes no sense. It's scandalous. The word scandal actually comes from the Greek word here in verse 3. Look with me in verse 3. It says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The word Scandalizo in the Greek is translated took offense right here. That's where the word scandal comes from. It was hard for them to believe. It was shocking for them to hear Jesus saying what he was saying. His message did not resonate. They were offended. And they were ready to do whatever it took to shut him up. The gospel offends us today in many ways. It's really hard to hear it. It tells us that we are broken beyond self-repair. Inwardly, we want to be able to fix ourselves. We want to be able to go along the road of self-actualization and discovering who we are. But the gospel goes against that and says you are broken far beyond anything that you can repair. It tells us that the real us is wicked. When the world tells us, discover the real you inside. Be who, you're, who you are. Look deep within you. The gospel says when you look deep within you, you see something disgustingly evil and wicked. That the heart that we have is sick and it's focused on self. The gospel also, also tells us that we are sinful on the inside with a propensity to do wrong. We're not inherently good. With, we're naturally good people that gone bad. But there's something wrong within us that takes us down the wrong path. It also tells us that we are in desperate need of God's grace. When the world says, no, 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 earn your salvation. Work your way to God. Prove yourself. The gospel says, the only thing you can prove about yourself is that you're guilty. The gospel is extremely offensive. Many people reject Jesus because some part of his message is too offensive for them to receive. And some of you, even after coming to Jesus, experience feelings of being offended by him, maybe even right now. These people, his hometown, wrote him off because of what he was saying. They looked for excuses not to believe him. What were they saying? Or what was he saying that offended them so much? We don't find out here in Mark what he was saying, but thankfully, we have some other Gospels. And in Luke's account of this same, um, this same event, he gives us extra details of what Jesus was teaching in the temple. Look with me in Luke chapter 4, verse 17 and following. So Jesus is in the temple. He's standing up. And the book of the prophet, in verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, 
And he found the place where it was written. So he started to read. And he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed. They were mesmerized. They were focused. They were on Jesus. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what he did? He got up and he wrote this mess, wrote, read this messianic passage. And then he read it and then he sat down and he says, The one, the Messiah that is prophesied there, that's me. They were shocked. Who does this guy think he is? This is what's his dad's name? Joseph. Yeah. It, his mom's Mary. His brother's over here. Look, his sisters are right over here. Who does he think he is? The Messiah. And Jesus told them, he says, I'm the one that this prophecy is speaking of. And this caused them, later on we see in Luke a few verses later, they were filled with rage to the point that they were driving him out of the city with a plan to throw him down a cliff. Who did this man think he was? He was like them. There was nothing special about him. This is a scandal. He's just like us. He's not the Messiah that we're waiting for. This is crazy. Get him out of here. Throw him off the cliff. The first reason they made excuses and not believing Christ is because the gospel message was scandalous. A fool, only a fool would believe that. The second reason that they were in unbelief is that God uses the ordinary. He didn't do something extraordinary on that day. He used an ordinary Man that they knew. It wasn't just a hometown crowd that was filled, uh, the, filling the room with, uh, that saw Jesus. It wasn't just people that saw him at brunch on Sunday morning and served him coffee when he came by at Starbucks. It wasn't just them, right? These were his relatives. They really knew him. It wasn't just people that knew of him. But remember, they were around their relatives much, much more than we are in our Western culture. It's easy for us to not be around our family. Many of us are separated from family. I know a lot of you, and we don't live right there with our families. And so this isn't that big of a deal to us. But Jesus said in a response to them, taking a fist to him, this is what he said. They were offended by him, and here's what he says in verse 4. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. I was going to say every married man knows that already, but I'm not going to because it could be, you know, construed wrong. So I'll just keep that one to myself. But it's easier to respect other people than it is to respect the people that you really know. 
when you really know their faults, when you really know who they are, it's much harder. This was a modern proverb of the day. Jesus was quoting something that was generally known to most everyone. It was found in Jewish and pagan writings alike. It's a truism. And it's just saying it's hard for people to honor those who are really close to them. It's harder for me to preach to my mom and dad and brother and sister when I go back and visit them because it's just simply harder for them to see me in a spiritually uh, authoritative uh, light. You ever tried to teach your parents something? I regret teaching on Facebook. <laughs> you probably found out it's, it's hard to get your parents to listen to you if you try to do that. And it's natural. And when you have kids and they try to teach you something, you're going to feel the exact same way. You have to be much more intentional. You have to be much more respectful to get their ear, to allow them the opportunity to want to listen to you. But see, Jesus wasn't just proclaiming to be a good preacher or even a prophet. He was claiming to be the one. Not just an answer, but the answer. Anything more than any of us will ever claim, I hope. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, we read this. And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again, this is a separate occasion, to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When he, excuse me, when his own people, and people here is translated um, people, <laughs> I can see that, but it means relatives or kinsmen. So it means his own relatives heard of this. They went out to take custody of Jesus, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Another translation I like says better. Uh, it says it better, I think. It says he's gone mad. He's crazy. So his own family and relatives were saying this dude has gone mad. They were puzzled by his behavior. He's claiming to be the one. Later on in the same chapter in verse 31, we pick up where he's, he's away from his family, and they come searching for him in verse 31. It says, then his mother, talking of Jesus' mother, and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers, are, they're outside looking for you. Answering them, Jesus said, well, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this is not that shocking to us. I alluded to it earlier. But it was scandalous for them because Jesus was saying, my family that I am part of is not my identity. He's saying, I am more than part of this family. In this day, it was not as individualistic as we are today. Many of us live separately from our parents, as I said earlier, and it's not a big deal to hear this, but for, for, for them to hear Jesus say this, if I can spit that out, for them to hear Jesus say this was shocking and infuriating, and another reason they were frustrated with him. His mother and brothers were looking for him. Most likely, they were trying to get to him in order to rein him in. Like, Jesus, dude, you got to stop saying this stuff. You got to stop doing it. It's not going to work out for you. People are getting mad. By the way, we know you're not the one, so stop lying to everybody. You're not going to get elected in November if you keep tweeting this stuff. (laughs) 
To them, his family, Jesus was ordinary. He was ordinary. They were waiting for something spectacular. Not someone whose diaper they changed. Not someone who they saw learning to walk. Not someone that they saw learning how to speak. Not someone they saw eating and drinking the same foods and the same meals and the same family reunions that we were at. They made excuses because this just couldn't be true. They knew who Jesus was, and he was an ordinary man. But God uses the ordinary. And because he does, we like to make excuses. The third reason we like to make excuses that lead us to not believe in Christ is, is that God works through our faith. Lack of faith somehow hinders the power of God. It's not that he can't do it. But he chooses to operate within the scope of faith. Not every time, but many times. These people missed out on Jesus, the one, because they didn't believe. In Mark chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, it says, And Jesus could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Now, if we're not careful here, we can twist this into another excuse and we can wrongly say that God won't do anything because of the lack of faith in others. Like, I was really praying for this and wanting this, but there's so many of you that don't have enough faith, so I'm going to blame it on you, so I'll deflect it. Somehow, in some ways, those instances can be true, actually. But there will be times when we will want to see something happen, and it won't happen because of lack of faith. But we are going to keep our hope in the faithfulness of Jesus, not in the faithfulness of his followers. We are called to keep our hope in his faithfulness, not in the faithfulness of his followers. Unbelief caused Jesus to be astonished in a negative way. It wasn't a good thing. He was negatively astonished by the people of his hometown. And speaking of unbelief, it's a serious offense. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and through 14 speaks of unbelief. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There's a lot of other great things they say there too. How do we know, what's a litmus test for us to gauge whether or not we're walking in unbelief? B.K. West. Westcott, Westcott said this. He said, unbelief finds its practical issue in disobedience. He was quote, talking about this verse. And what that means, simply put, is you know you're living in unbelief if you're living in disobedience. If you're living in disobedience to the Lord, then you know you're living in unbelief. Because if you're living by faith in Jesus, then you will be living a life of purity. 
an unadulterated obedience to him. But anytime we find ourselves in disobedience, it's only because, simply because, there is unbelief somewhere in here. We say we believe it, but something's not clicking yet. Maybe we're mesmerized by something other than Christ. Excuses keep us from walking by faith and obedience. We throw excuses out all the time. My prayers haven't been answered for a new job, so I'm giving up. My friend's angry with me for no reason. In fact, I'm wrongly accused. I feel so alone right now. We prayed for months to find Sierra, and we didn't. What's the use? We prayed for Sean to be healed, and he wasn't. I'm the only one at work who wants to walk with Jesus while the rest of them live like there's no tomorrow and do whatever feels good at the moment. I'm talking about Larry and, and John. <laughs> I've prayed for my family to know Jesus, and it only seems like it's gotten worse. What excuses are you telling yourself that are causing you to doubt the Lord? What narratives are you playing in your head that lead you to think that God is disengaged with you and with the world? Fortunately for us, ultimately, Jesus is greater than our excuses. There's this huge plan, huge that God is working right now and has been revealing it since the beginning of time. This plan of God is bringing justice to the world. And one day it's going to come in its entirety. But until that day, Satan will be doing everything he can to cause us not to believe in God. However, he cannot stop the plan of God. Amen? God is also outside of this big picture, working individually in your lives. He's engaged with you. You and me and everyone. He's using all of the individuals in this huge plan to orchestrate his plan. Some of the people in this room right now are rebelling against God right now. You don't believe. You're tired. You're just about to give up. But God's going to move in your heart, and he's going to show you how wonderful he is. He's about to break you through to the other side of this dark, lonely valley. You're about to experience an awakening of grace and mercy like you've never known before. Then you're going to understand at a deeper level how great God's love truly is. That's good news. God is also going to use people out there that you've written off as a lost cause who are currently rebelling against him. You think they're gone, but praise the Lord, you're wrong they're not a lost cause. The late, great Sean Howe said, there's no such thing as a lost cause. I was pretty close to how he sounded. Not really. There's no such thing. He says, there's no such thing as a lost cause. I was a lost cause. They're going to come around. They're going to come to faith in Christ. And they're going to do it when they encounter Jesus in a life-changing way. 
Remember how, how Jesus' family rejected him? They were trying to rein him in. Like, dude, he's gone crazy. Stop saying these things. Get away from these people. They didn't believe in him. Well, James was the brother of Jesus. He was a younger brother, as all of his brothers were younger. A younger brother, and he struggled with Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. He was confused and puzzled, and most likely he was angry. But something happened. One day, the Lord Jesus showed himself to his brother in all of his risen splendor. After the crucifixion and death, Jesus came back to life, and he proved even to his harshest critics, his family, that he was who he said he was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a beautiful chapter on the resurrection. In verse 6, it says, after that, after it lists people he all appeared to, he said, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. They're still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now, when James saw Jesus, all the excuses he had not to believe in him melted away. Within 30 years of this time in Nazareth, when he was rejecting him, within 30 years of that, James was no longer a doubter and an opponent of Christ, but he was the one who was known as the faithful, persistent teacher and prayer warrior. He was loyal to his older brother because his brother was the Messiah. The excuses were gone. The excuses of the people of Nazareth hindered the work of Jesus that day. I wonder, what is today's Nazareth? What's your Nazareth? Where are people too familiar with Jesus to believe in him? Could it be the church? Some of the most rebellious hearts against Christ, Christ are going to become pillars of faith like James. They're going to come to faith, and they'll do it when they are mesmerized with Christ, when they see him in all of his glory. This encounter in Nazareth wasn't the last time Jesus would be rejected by his people. It was the last time in Scripture where he's teaching in a synagogue in this capacity. But it wasn't the last time when he was rejected by his people. You see, there's this other time where Messiah would once again travel to the city that he would consider to be his home. And he would go to the temple where the Messiah should go. And one more time... He was going to be rejected by his people, except this time it was going to have fatal consequences at Calvary. Jesus did not let your excuses keep him from going to the cross for you. And he did it because he treasures you. He will not leave you. He will never abandon you. He is greater than your excuses. When we live and we believe in the scandalous message of grace from this divinely ordinary man named Jesus of Nazareth, we will see our excuses run away while the strength and power of God takes their place. Let's pray. Father, we are... doing our best in this moment to consider these words, I hope. We are a people who easily make excuses 
And Lord, I, I just believe that, that many of us right now need to become mesmerized by you. We need to see how great you are. So Lord, I pray that your, your word would go out, that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, that we would see the, the beauty of what you've done for us on Calvary. That when you were rejected by your father, you caused us to have the opportunity to be accepted by him. We praise you. We love you. I pray that you would help us to, to have a great faith, that we would be a church that would be guilty of believing in you, knowing that you are our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.